Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Philip Wallach. Philip is a resident senior fellow in governance at the R Street Institute, where he researches America's separation of powers with a focus on the relationship between Congress and the administrative state. He was previously a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, where he served as a fellow with the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress from May to October of 2019. For our summer 2020 issue, Philip wrote a fascinating essay for us titled Crisis Government. In his piece, Philip argues that the defining feature of our political era is not polarization, but rather our responses to crises. Those responses have often been inadequate, he argues, and he suggests some ideas for restoring a more deliberative model of government that can help us prepare for future emergencies and hopefully prevent some of those emergencies. Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me with you. Absolutely. So Philip, we wanted to start out by talking a little bit about the thesis of your piece, and I, I kind of already touched on it, but it's the idea that Everybody talks about polarization, but you argue that it's not actually the defining feature of how we think about politics today. Rather, it should be, as you argue, how we respond to crises. So just to start off, I wanted to ask you, how did you come to this conclusion that polarization is really not as important as people think it is? And why did you then kind of pivot to focusing on crisis government? Sure. So I think that the conventional wisdom, which certainly doesn't come out of nowhere, is that polarization has left us utterly paralyzed, just completely unable to take serious action on on any of the major issues of the day. There are different variants of that conventional wisdom, and the two main variants are, those jerks are responsible for all of the paralysis, or (laughs) no, those those jerks are responsible for the paralysis. But, But there's really a lot of agreement on the basic fact of paralysis and the idea that pretty much all we can expect our politicians to do is be nasty to one another. That may be a pretty accurate caricature of most of the years of the 21st century, unfortunately, but it really isn't true of this year. In 2020, in March of April, we we passed the largest supplemental spending bill in the history of the Republic, and we created a new federal entitlement for the duration of the pandemic a paid sick leave program. All of that was done with overwhelming bipartisan majorities, often near unanimity in Congress. And as all that was going on, I was kind of amazed because still the headlines in a lot of the news coverage was, politics is so polarized. Can you believe what, can you believe the names these people are calling each other as they pass these overwhelmingly bipartisan bills, (laughs) spending unprecedented amounts of money? And it's true. People from the two parties were not rushing to embrace each other, and that wasn't just because of the social distancing rules. They have a long habit of saying nasty things about each other, and they have not given that up in 2020. But at the same time, it seems crazy to me to just emphasize the enmity and the difference when we have this incredible, almost consensus style of government to pass these enormous, enormous bills. The other thing that puts me in a position to write about this is that I wrote a book about the responses to the financial crisis of of 2008. That was certainly not a time of of consensus responses from the government. Throughout that crisis, there was really very sharp division. But it really wasn't 
simple Republican and Democrat division, it turned out to be much more of an insiders versus outsiders dynamic. And ultimately, the insiders had the better of it and passed massive bailout bills in 2008 and beyond. And really, there was a lot of continuity between the responses of the Bush administration dealing with the first part of the crisis in 2008 and then the Obama administration carrying on in 2009 and beyond. There was a lot of elite coming together where the party leaders from both parties got together and said, wow, this is really scary stuff. We have to work together. We have to put aside partisan difference. And they weren't able to bring along everyone in those years. There was really a lot of populist distrust of the main sort of channel of of responses. But in the end, you know, they did pass a lot of extremely consequential legislation back in those years as well. I know much less about September 11th and, and the aftermath there, but it strikes me that that was also a case where as much as we had just gone through Clinton impeachment and, you know, you'd heard about Newt Gingrich turning American politics into some kind of battle arena. In the wake of the Twin Towers falling, there was really a moment of of consensus crisis government where you had the parties put aside their differences and work together. And that fell apart after a little while. But even once it fell apart more broadly, you still again had a lot of leadership sticking together. So that's really the theme that I want to emphasize is that it's really remarkable how much congressional leadership deciding to come together across partisan lines has defined some of the most consequential actions of 21st century American politics, in spite of the fact that it's true that during most of the time, what our politicians do is say nasty things about each other. And so those moments of a sort of bipartisan consensus come about largely in response to crises. And they come about increasingly often. So in your piece, you cite political scientist David Mayhew's list of significant laws passed by Congress. And you write, taken as a portion of all laws in Mayhew's data set, crisis responses comprised less than one-tenth of all laws from 1951 to 2000, but have comprised about a third of all laws from 2001 to 2020. It could be said that perhaps we have more crises in the last 20 years than we did in the 50 years that preceded it. But you're not buying that argument. Could you tell us why? I'm not sure I would reject that out of hand, but I don't think that's the main part of the story. I mean, largely, it's a denominator change. Congress really did a lot in the second half of the 20th century in terms of building up the social welfare state, a regulatory state, a civil rights state. Those agendas didn't completely drop off the map in the 21st century. We've continued all of them in some ways. I guess building out public infrastructure is another major theme. But really, Congress has has allowed itself sort of to move away from a lot of that core state-building activity in the 21st century. And meanwhile, it's found itself oriented toward these crises very much. So there's the big the big three crises that that I mentioned before, but also you've seen responses to hurricanes becoming a major source of, of congressional activity and sort of huge spending bills of a size that would have just baffled 20th century lawmakers, I think. And you've seen fiscal crises sort of becoming 
a mainstay of American politics. In fact, really sort of acting like passing a spending bill every year is its own kind of crisis. So if you have the sense that only in a crisis can you act, then you really have a lot of incentives to make a lot of different things feel like crises. And that's another thing that I point out in in my essay that that's really an ongoing theme of American politics is, is the attempt to, to make every every problem some sort of actionable deadline where the world will come to an end. So you've seen the debt ceiling dramatics. You've seen saw the fiscal cliff. You design all sorts of cliffs into the policy systems such that before we jump off the cliff, we can pass some legislation, again, in this leadership-driven mode where, okay, this is the one kind of situation where we really know our Congress acts like it has the ability to pass laws. And so that's that's the mode we increasingly inhabit. And on the one hand, that's better than nothing. I think, it, again, this conventional wisdom, some people take it so literally that, oh, we're so paralyzed, we can't do anything. And they think that that literally means we can never do anything, even in extremis. And that's not right. We, we do big things sometimes in crises. But it does leave a lot to be desired because it makes it very difficult to act with any kind of foresight if the only thing you're doing is reacting to the urgent crises that are either finding their way into public life or, or being manufactured to get there. Yeah, Philip, it seems like you mentioned, too, that things are labeled as emergency spending, but they really end up funding things that aren't emergencies, whether it's, you know, it's for disaster relief, but it ends up funding a local infrastructure project, or, you know, it's for overseas contingency operations with defense, but it's really stuff that could be done in normal base defense spending. Why does Congress use that emergency spending to fund things that it could really, you know, fund in a routine way? Right. So I think in any era of budgeting, there's going to be a search for the the magic asterisks right that can <laughs> that can that can kind of get you through the numbers give you a, a a way of getting to where you want to go without technically breaking the rules and in the 2010s we've had this regime since since 2011 there was the big debt ceiling showdown in 2011 that left us with this budget control act that put fairly strict requirements on spending and left this sequester mechanism in place that nobody really wanted to be using as a way of enforcing it. So Congress sort of fought a a continuous two-front war against the Budget Control Act because, in truth, our our real preferences for spending were were somewhat higher than the levels included in that that law. And so on the one hand, you had Congress on an annual basis seeing how much they were willing to just explicitly let themselves off the hook and say, actually, we're going to raise these budget caps. On the other hand, you had Congress figuring out ways of taking things off budget such that they could get higher spending without the on-budget numbers going up. And so, you know, there's been a major evolution of this overseas contingency account that has allowed really a large percentage of defense spending now to be considered sort of permanent emergency. It's it's certainly kind of vaguely Orwellian, I think. And then you have disaster spending on on another side where, yeah, it seems like because Congress has now developed this pattern of spending tens of billions of dollars in the wake of of a natural disaster, you you really have to take those opportunities to do some of the regular infrastructure development work that you might have 
just included in a regular spending bill had these budget caps not been there. It kind of leaves you with the worst of both worlds. I mean, you sort of aren't really getting the spending restraint that the conservatives who pushed a hard bargain to get this budget control act back in 2011 hoped for. On the other hand, you're, you're sort of not getting the discipline of a budget process conducted out in the open because you end up creating all these strange add-ons that kind of take away the focus of thinking about things holistically, which is what the whole budget exercise is supposed to accomplish. So there's a lot of debate in the 20th century about the dangers of the imperial presidency. And you've written about the administrative state before, and I'm pretty familiar with a lot of the critiques there. But I guess what I'm hearing now is you're characterizing a a different kind of administrative state or a different kind of imperial federal government, where it's not so much Congress simply delegating all of its responsibilities to the executive, but it's congressional leaders who, in your words, transcend their mutual partisan animosities in order to massively empower the government. How did that consensus sort of build among the elites within both parties? And what's preventing them from expressing their actual partisan differences in spite of these moments of crisis? Okay, well, to answer that, I want to get back to this first phrase that you used, the, the, the imperial presidency. So one of the things that I observed in this piece is that it, it's really kind of striking how little these crisis responses are presidentially dominated responses. I mean, when we think of some of the crises of the 20th century, we just naturally associate them with presidential leadership in terms of the response. So certainly when we think of World War One with Wilson and his administration, even more than we think of the Great Depression and FDR and World War II, those administrations of the past really ran through the president made the president the central figure in responding to these crises in a way that certainly we haven't really seen in response to the financial crisis or or the coronavirus crisis. This year in 2020, you could argue that that's because of the peculiarities of, of our current president. And I'm sure that that's true to some extent. But I think there's more to it than that. Because when you look at the last round with the financial crisis, the seminal moments don't bring to mind Bush or Obama. They bring to mind Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Hank Paulson, Bush's treasury secretary, Timothy Geithner, who was president of the New York Fed, and then Obama's treasury secretary. There are these figures who are certainly part of the administrations, but seem to operate very much independently of, of the president. So that's kind of a new dimension. I mean, one of the books that influenced my thinking most about responding to crises is this great work of political science by Clinton Rossiter. It's called Constitutional Dictatorship. Rossiter wrote this book in the 1950s, very much reflecting on the experience of the two world wars across the Western world. He didn't just look at the United States. He was looking at Germany, France, and, and Britain as well. His idea was that all of these systems seem to have their ways more or less formal of sort of empowering their leaders to act above the law or beyond the law in moments of great emergency. And that was certainly the case when we think about Lincoln in the Civil War and FDR in, in the Second World War. 
when we think about these 21st century crises, it's it's really peculiar. The, the people who seem to be acting above the law, who, who are taking on this role as constitutional dictators to meet the emergency, are, are these unelected people. And so to me, that creates some ongoing legitimacy problems. At least it seems like it ought to. I think in the in the wake of the financial crisis, it, it was very easy to point to ways where it was. So far in 2020, it's a little harder. You haven't seen a massive public backlash against Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell or Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. I mean, there's mm-hmm. certainly you can find rumblings from different quarters about ways that people are dissatisfied with both of those gentlemen or their institutions, but they're really fairly subdued. But these these people are, in fact, wielding huge powers and trillions of dollars, you know, not, not to exaggerate, trillions of dollars put at their disposal by Congress. I think Congress isn't a complete writer of blank checks. I think some people just think, well, Congress literally hands over the reins to these folks at the Treasury or the Fed and, and says, good luck to you. That's that's a little unfair to Congress. They, they have put dollar limits and time limits on, on the way this money has been used. They've certainly had, had some moments of debate about substantive limitations as well. A big emphasis on, well, if, if companies are going to receive money, then we need to rein in the executive compensation of their leaders, for example. That's been a consistent congressional emphasis. But at the end of the day, it really is mostly about turning over huge amounts of money to the executive branch and leaving it to them to figure out the best way forward. So there's something very novel about that. I think it doesn't seem to match our ideas about how political accountability works in our constitutional system. And I don't really have a, I'm not trying to stand up on a soapbox and say, this is, this is a disaster for our republic. Or I'm certainly not trying to say that, it, that any of these leaders are crooks, but it just makes me feel like we need to step back and, and take stock and say, what kind of system are, are we developing here? Because it, it doesn't match up with the kind of textbook accounts that we were brought up with or previously were familiar with. I think another interesting point in your piece, Philip, is that rather than polarization being a problem, in some ways, lack of polarization is a problem. As you point out, we've got congressional leaders making deals, bipartisan votes, power being delegated to executive officials, unelected officials, and there's real no deliberation going on. And you would think that's actually what we need to try to solve a crisis is a deliberation about what do we do next. Talk a little bit about that for us, if you could. Yeah. So just to start with this year as a concrete example. Really remarkable how little debate there was about, well, if we're really going to spend trillions of dollars sort of on an off-budget basis to combat this crisis, what should the basic idea be about handing out this money? It seems like how could you how could you move forward without having a debate on that? But it was pretty much taken for granted that we were going to find ways to funnel this money into existing firms. And that was going to be the basic way forward. We were going to try to incentivize firms to keep their employees by giving them forgivable loans. And we were going to have a, a less, a much lesser component of handing cash over to individuals. But the main program was going to be all run through existing firms. And that has huge consequences, right? I mean, you might say that 
in some ways, a lot of firms that might have been not in such good shape before the coronavirus problem arrived have really caught a break. A lot of them got to take in a lot of federal money. Maybe they're <laughs> going to fail anyway, but they got they got to take in a lot of federal tax dollars before before they went bust. So that was a boon to the people running those companies. We didn't have to do it that way. We could have directed aid almost 100% to individuals and families. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people made strong cases for why that might have been a more efficient way of proceeding, but mm-hmm. it was never really debated. I think part of it was we sort of had a playbook that we developed in 2008 and beyond. We said, well, let's, we know how to do that. Let's do that. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think it really would have helped to have a robust national debate. Of course, it was complicated by the fact that Congress was pretty much emptying itself out because of worries that having physical debates would, in fact, spread the virus. Sure. So that is a complicating dimension. But I feel cheated as a citizen <laughs> that that our, that our leaders didn't have more of a public debate where they really hashed out what is the best way to meet this unprecedented crisis, I feel like we really lacked a lot of creativity in our responses. We sort of acted like there were only a few things we could be talking about when really it seems like there are lots and lots of dimensions we could have been thinking about acting differently. I believe that everyone's expectation that at the end of the day, it was going to be a few congressional leaders working out the basic parameters in conjunction with the main negotiator for the Trump administration has been the Treasury Secretary. That really left us with, without a very robust public debate. I think, again, that's, that's not just this year. That's consistent with the way things have been developing. And certainly, academic scholarship about Congress has emphasized just how much congressional leadership has come to, to dominate agenda setting and the framing of these giant omnibus bills, which which carry so much of the substance of our of our governing decisions, and and how much really congressional leaders sort of have a monopoly on information at this point, all of that troubles me and makes me w- wish we had a somewhat more open and freewheeling system. So it sounds like centralization is a big part of the problem here in the hands of a small group of congressional insiders, as well as within certain parts of the executive branch. And so I guess that leads me to conclude that decentralization would be a big part of the solution. And I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through some of the steps that could be taken that would improve things through decentralization. Sure. So you could certainly think about decentralization on a number of different dimensions. I mean, one that I'm pushing is, is just within Congress to devolve power somewhat from the leadership to the committees. I think giving committees more power to set the agenda for the overall institution would be a good thing and would allow there to be sort of more parallel processing of information about different kinds of problems so that we wouldn't always just be responding to the most urgent thing that that forces itself onto the, the agenda of the leaders. So that's one area of decentralization. Of course, federalism is, an, is another. And I do think there's a lot of lessons to be learned about the way that we've been served by having 50 governors who in many ways have had room to distinguish themselves in responding to this pandemic, which some of them I think have. 
at the same time, our, our federalism is is kind of fiscally handicapped because almost every state has a balanced budget requirement and therefore finds itself sort of back on its heels, struggling to pay the bills whenever there's a contraction in the economy. So whereas the federal government is willing to act counter-cyclically and spend massive deficits in response to these crises, the states really don't have that capacity. So to the extent that we wanted to have more of a decentralized agenda that runs through the states, we have to think about ways of of helping our state leaders have the money when when they actually need it most, which our current system isn't really set up to do. I think you could think about decentralization in other ways as well. I mean, of, of course, you could wish for responses that aren't just run through government nearly as much that let civil society have its day. So I, I think there's a lot of ways we could try to decentralize as a way of vitalizing our system. And certainly the chief of national affairs over there, you've all have been, has given us a lot to think about in ways that we could be building up decentralized institutions. But unfortunately, I think it's been difficult in, in this pandemic year. Philip, I just wanted to read a, a quote from your piece that uh, really hit home for me and I enjoyed it. Quote, our relatively poor response to the coronavirus crisis ought to make clear that in spite of the dominance of crises in our politics, one of the things we are worst at is preparing for emergencies before they happen, or better yet, preventing them from becoming emergencies altogether. I know you've already started talking about decentralization. What is an example of how a more decentralized process would help something from becoming an emergency at all? What's, what's like an example of that, how that would work? I'm hardly an expert in pandemic response <laughs> policy. I've just been dabbling like many others in that field as something that's been on my mind a lot this year. But it did strike me as I as I learned about what kind of preparations our government took that it's it's certainly not like we did nothing. We had some people thinking about these problems and and trying to make us prepared for them. In some ways it's almost worse because it it's not that it was never on our agenda and that we we just were taken from out of the blue. It's that we did some stuff and then sort of took our eye off the ball because we're not very good at keeping our eye on, on the many balls that there are in this complicated world. So we had something called the Public Health Emergency Fund, which was a, a federal pot of money meant to provide resources in the event of a public health emergency. But you know, as we were looking for dollars to save in the wake of this Budget Control Act that we talked about earlier, that was one of the casualties. It got defunded in the course of, of the 2010s. We did create a little bit of something. We can find just a little bit of money for a lot of things in our system. <laughs> when you're spending trillions, what's a, what's a few hundred million between friends? <laughs> in 2019, Congress created something for the CDC to use called the Infectious Disease Rapid Response Reserve Fund, which at the beginning of 2020 had 105 million in it. But that's a drop in the bucket. And, you know, I think there were a lot of reasons to be disappointed in, in the infrastructure we had built up when we think about what happened in especially February and, and March of this past year. So I think to me, the moral of, of, of that story is we realize that prevention is a live possibility and we're, we're willing to devote a few pennies to it, but we just don't take it very seriously compared to crisis response. 
we seem to not make the connection in our heads that if we did more on on the front end, we might we might be significantly relieved on the back end. One of the things that I suggest is that, well, hey, if you had some kind of guarantee that a congressional subcommittee that spent its time thinking about pandemic response was really going to be able to force some of its most important things onto the agenda and possibly be able to marshal more resources than sort of just an afterthought in some appropriations bill, then that might be one of the ways where we could make our system more forward looking. But, you know, I actually toyed with coming out of my research on the responses to the financial crisis. I I toyed with thinking that we should have a really large available pot of money that would be put pretty much at the at the treasury secretary's discretion and you would say hey look we recognize that the, our economy in the 21st century is volatile enough and there may come a time when the treasury secretary needs to come up with a whole lot of money to support some endangered sector systemically important sector we would like that treasury secretary to be able to act even without consulting Congress beforehand. I mean, he should have all sorts of requirements on what kind of reports should be filed with Congress afterwards and what sort of justifications should need to be offered. But Mm -hmm. it might actually make sense to just create that kind of emergency fund. People don't like that idea in general (laughs) because it it seems to invite different kinds of, of moral hazard and it seems to make some official unaccountable. But my argument is, well, the fact of the matter is the way the system operates now already ends up doing that in practice, and it might make sense to be more above board with it. That response didn't entirely answer your question, I think. <laughs> no, that was a good example. Though. Very interesting. I was wondering, as we sort of start to wrap up, if I could just zoom out for a second, because one of the things that I really loved about your piece I guess it was just the way in which it resonated. Like it's very confusing to live in the beltway and be engaged in all of these partisan fights and bickering and then to watch our leaders get together on Capitol Hill every few years and pass trillions of dollars worth of legislation without much fight in these moments of crisis. But I guess one of the things that was striking to me is that it seems like we live in a culture of kind of political sensationalism in which the only way to build a coalition around an agenda would be to couch it in the most sort of catastrophic terms, <laughs> right? Like it's a violation of human rights or like it's not healthcare reform, it's, it's a healthcare crisis or the opioid crisis. And, we, and that's how things sort of operate in, in modern American democracy. And so, well, I guess centralization seems like a really good first step. I'm wondering if how possible any of this reform is until the culture in which this politics exists changes itself and which the citizenry, I guess, in other words, becomes more demands, less sort of catastrophic, apocalyptic crisis centered politics. If the political class can really change it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In that, it can't happen until the citizenry changes, or yes, it could. <laughs> yes, yes, I share your pessimism um, <laughs> in in the sense that all of this very much does seem baked into the culture at this point. You know, they sound like very hand wavy words to talk about the political culture and and habits of sobriety and 
calm deliberation giving way to habits of you know posing for sound bites on the cable news recap of the day i think there's a lot of truth to that and and frankly it's not so easy for me to think about how any individual politician can overcome that general cultural predisposition that we now have it's not like there aren't people in members of congress who are some sober hardworking individuals who are willing to put in some time on hard not sexy issues but they're kind of caught in a rough place where they don't have any solid expectation that that kind of hard work is going to lead anywhere and instead you have a, your colleagues who are willing to make the most noise and the most outlandish accusations getting tons and tons of donations from a national you know whenever they get covered in the national news media even if they're a member of the house they start getting donations pouring in from all around the country and that gives them money that they can pass around to others in the institution that that becomes a source of clout and they get they get their slots on the tv shows and that becomes a source of constant attention and i really do sympathize with the folks who who wish things would be different but sort of also just feel the pressures of of the system as it exists now which really pushes towards short-termism and, and sensationalism. I think we have to go after those incentive problems directly to have any hope of turning things around. So if, if, if I were in a position to be redesigning Congress as an institution, for example, we have to find a way to guarantee people who put in the time to be institutionalists and who put in the time to become subject matter experts for the subcommittees that they work on you're really going to become a leader on this issue if you stick around and you do the hard work. And I think we've we've moved away from that too much and people just can't be confident enough that that's the case. Unfortunately, what the path that people feel like now is the surest route is is just constantly figuring out ways to curry favor with leadership because they know that leadership is the one who passes out all the goodies that remain for the place. And of course, and generating funds is a big, big part of, of that whole culture. The leadership wants to pat you on the head more if you bring in more dollars for the team. You know, I, I spent some time working on the Hill in 2019, and it did give me an appreciation of, you know, if you think from the individual member perspective and you think, okay, here, here's a person of goodwill willing to do hard work, what should they do? I think it really is a lot harder than most people appreciate to figure out a way forward, given the incentives we have now. Okay, a final question, Philip, kind of going off of that. You know, looking forward, it, it seems like Congress may pass another aid package that may pass by the time we publish this podcast. But looking forward, you know, it's tough to make predictions, but do you think the coronavirus will have a legacy on how we operate the government now? Will it just exacerbate the trends that you write about that are, you know, we find distressing? Or will it give a chance for Congress to reform itself because it was such a big, a big crisis? What do you think about that? Unfortunately, I think it mostly exacerbates these trends and, and this, this dimension of wanting to not have the physical presence of members and their staffs because of worries about spreading the virus really has made that worse. If regular members are staying away most of the time and their staffs are staying away most of the time, I can tell you who's not staying away. And that's the leadership offices <laughs> who are actually 
the ones involved in these negotiations for whatever you want to call the next thing, the, the phase phase four right. or, or phase, uh, phase five of our crisis response. I think there's a lot of well-meaning folks who, who want to reform Congress who really worry about partisanship obstructing necessary legislation and who unfortunately in their well-meaning desire to reform the place mostly end up thinking about sort of what are the best ways we can make sure Congress doesn't get in the way. I think that's just a recipe for further marginalizing Congress, turning it into much more of a rubber stamp and a, and a peanut gallery. I think people who want to turn Congress around and make it into a, a more substantial place really need to be wary of, of a lot of well-meaning reforms to make Congress function virtually as a response to coronavirus, for example, because again, when, when you sort of give the message to members that, hey, members, your job is to stay away most of the time and then come back and vote for the package once the leaders have actually put it together. I mean, that kind of leans into a lot of the trends that have existed anyway, but then like tells people that that represents good behavior. We really have to give individual members an, an idea that what good and courageous representation would entail is something very different from that and would require them to stick their necks out and, and take some stands against leadership dominance of the agenda. But again, I, when I think about what we've seen in the past three months, I, I, it's, it's mostly pretty disheartening in, in, in that sense. Yeah. I think, you know, we had this, these episodes where Thomas Massey of Kentucky was, was, <laughs> was, was making some procedural objections. And Thomas Massey is not just such a, a reasonable guy. And maybe some of the things he wants are, are not so reasonable, but he was just so viciously pilloried in the press for trying yeah. to think about the procedural prerogatives of an individual member. He was portrayed by by leaders of both parties as just such a unforgivable nuisance. I have to say that I've come to have a lot more sympathy for these so-called congressional gadflies who think about procedural trouble they can cause because pretty much that's the only way that they have to go against the grain of this leadership dominance. So I, I think if we ever do see things turn around, you could expect it to emanate from that kind of behavior, probably not just from a lone member, but, but from some kind of caucus deciding that they need to take a stand against, against the leader and establish the, themselves as, a, as an independent power center whether that would come from a split between Trumpian Republicans and less Trumpy Republicans or more progressive Democrats or versus more centrist Democrats, I can't say. But that's where I always sort of look for the, the energy that would be required to drive a reform agenda that I would feel would be capable of turning the place around. So looking for some entrepreneurs in Congress in that sense then? Yeah. Well, very good. Well, Philip, it was a great essay. Really enjoyed you writing it. We enjoyed you talking with us for the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. If you'd like to read Philip's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. 
And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.